Welcome to the South Canadian Valley Church of Christ podcast. Please enjoy the following study. We are glad you're here and that you could join us in the house of the Lord this morning. It's an honor to stand before you and to present a portion of God's Word. And I had an extra special privilege this morning is that I got my first high five from my grandfather ever this morning as I was walking up here. So that was kind of exciting to get to do that. So appreciate everyone's participation in the service thus far. Um, we're really blessed because of you. You know, they say whenever you start a sermon, you should open up with some sort of softball question to sort of get everybody tuned in and on the same page and thinking about your topic together. And so in that spirit, I'd just like to ask you, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? What's our purpose? What's the reason for humanity existing? You know, these are questions that have persisted all over the world throughout time. Many people have answered these questions in ways that they try to explain the shape of the universe that squares with their experiences. To give a few examples, in Eastern religions, people talk about nirvana, which is where you try to get back in line with the fabric of the universe. Another answer is hedonism, which at the risk of a gross mischaracterization is to find as much pleasure in life as you can, to just get rid of all pain and just find joy as much as you can. Another thing that people said that we may consider for the meaning of life or our purpose is called nihilism. In the late 19th centuries in Germany and Russia, people looked at it and said, well, if our body's just proteins firing and that's all there is, we're just playing out some cosmic script, nothing really matters. There is no purpose. There's, there's no reason for living at all. What's the right answer as people have tried to answer these questions? Well, Part of having a biblical worldview, of looking to Christ for the answers for all things, means we look to the Bible for the answers to these questions. And we don't choose this ourselves by philosophy, but we go to the Word of God and we let it set the agenda. We let the Word of God decide what is the purpose of humanity, what is the purpose of our lives. As we think about that question of why are humans here, why does God say we're here, there may be some passages that come to mind, but I believe that we can get a fuller understanding of this by looking at the full story of the Bible, starting with page one. Thank you, Brother Bruce, for reading that to us this morning. And over the next three sermons, Dustin, Jordan, and I are going to take a look at the biblical theme of the image of God. We believe this theme provides a helpful lens to understand the story of the Bible the story of everything and our place in it. So let's read Genesis 1, 26 to 28 for our thoughts this morning. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over everything that moves on the earth. So being an image of God is a fundamental fact about humanity that determines purpose. A lot of times it comes up when we talk about worth and dignity. The Bible even talks about this later in the book of Genesis, how you shouldn't kill people because they're in the image of God. In James chapter, I believe it's chapter 3 or 4, he talks about how you bless God with your mouth, but then you curse your brother who's made in the image of God. So the image of God, whatever that means, which we'll be exploring for three sermons, has something to do with our 
dignity. This is one of the fundamental claims of the Old Testament. And it sets it so, so far ahead of its time that human beings are made in God's image. We might say, first off, that means that humans are important. That's true. But why? First off, let's, let's build up to this and put this in context. Brother Bruce, Brother Bruce read the creation story for us in Genesis chapter 1. Let's review quickly. That God, in the beginning, before the beginning, before anything existed at all, that He as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together existed. And God declared, let there be light, and there was light. And God makes the heavens and the earth, and the darkness is over the face of the waters. And as we come to the next day, God separates the waters above from the waters that are beneath. Eventually, he makes the sea and the dry land appear on day three. He makes plants to grow. And as he makes those plants to grow, in these first three days, he's ordering spaces. He's making places, and he's ordering them. He's, he's providing getting rid of the chaos that's there, and he's providing order. But then he begins to put inhabitants in those places. So for the heavens that were created on day four, he makes the stars, the billions and trillions of stars and planets that exist by the word of God were spoken into being on day four. And then in day five, to live in those seas and in the sky, he makes the birds and the fishes. And then on day six, he makes various livestock and beast of the field. And as you notice, if you listen through that, that Brother Bruce was reading this morning, God says it, and it happens. God makes it, he declares it, and it comes into being without a whole lot of thought. And so, as we come to this, it's almost reaching to this, this crowning part here of what we just read in Genesis chapter 1. Because God doesn't make other comments about the fishes. He doesn't make other comments about the beast of the field and their value. He blesses them. But he doesn't say anything about their worth and their dignity. Let's go back to this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. So God said, has created all this stuff, and he says, Now, stop. God said, Let's make man in our image. That's a powerful, powerful statement. That we are distinct. That we are separate. That we are not here by chance. That God places us above the birds and the fishes and the other animals. In some sense, this places humans as the crowning achievement of creation as God orders the universe. Let's look a little further at what this poem means. This is what you'll see is a, is a poem we'll, we'll find out in ancient Hebrew. Okay? So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. We want to notice the first thing is that if you notice, there's sort of this bookend type of deal going on here. If you read verse 26 and 28, you know, it's both start with about how God let us make man in our image according to our likeness, let them have dominion. If you go down to verse 28, the next highlighted part says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. So if you notice, this verse 26 and this verse 28 are really kind of bookends that are leading to this middle part here. This is... Not really something we use a whole lot whenever we talk about structure, but it's, it's something that, that can be done. And so part of what the Hebrew poetry is getting at here is that in the middle is what's going on here. They're both leading to this middle statement. Okay, So let's look at that middle statement here. Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
Something in Hebrew poetry is a concept of parallelism. A loose way to talk about this, we've talked about this before, is the idea of thought rhyme. So a lot of times we talk about poems, and they end with, the, the you've got four lines, and the second and the fourth one, the last, the last syllables rhyme. Like, that's our rule for poetry. Fortunately or unfortunately, Hebrew poetry doesn't do that. Instead, they set lines next to each other that are communicating the same thing. Okay, so let's see what we've got here. God created man in his own image. Okay, fairly straightforward. In the image of God, he created him. So those are definitely saying the same thing. And what we can see then is that in this third part, we've got a similar statement about that, that male and female, he created them. So as God creates humans, he creates them male and female. He gives this designation to humans. And part of that is that together, in male and female, they're going to reflect God in some sense. They're going to be the image of God together. So this is said as another way of saying that humans are like God and that both male and female bear the image of God together. Okay, so if we go back to 26, it says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So the Bible says we are in the likeness of God. Stop there for a second. We are in the likeness of God. Don't rush past that. That God has created us like him in some sense. He could have made us however he wanted us to. He could have made us nothing like him. But instead, by some act of mercy and grace and love, God makes us like him. Okay, so what does that mean? There's certain attributes of God's character that we have, or that we might say we bear. There's many ways in which we're like God, and it's basically an impossible list. Um, there's books and articles and reviews that will bore you, anyone in here except Dustin to tears. They're just long, and they go on forever and ever. Okay. I want to look at three things that are classical attributes that make us like God that is distinct from animals. So reason, emotion, and volition. Let's talk about these things, three things quickly. So reason, emotion, and volition. Reason is the ability to think or to decide, to weigh different options, to decide the best option. When we see reason, we look at the wisdom of God, how God has the ability to look at a situation because of his wisdom. He knows what the best thing to do is. We, as humans, can look at a situation and try to the best of our abilities, discern what's the best thing to do here. Now, we don't always get it perfectly, but we have the choice and we have the ability, rather, to, to, to weigh these things and look at it, whereas an animal is just going to run on instincts. Okay? Um, emotion, along with the ability to think, comes the ability to feel and to experience complex emotions. God is said to show anger, compassion, love, and many other emotions. Um, those have a component that are acted out, and they're, they're performed, um, and they're different in that they're rooted in some sort of feeling. You know, as humans, we are blessed to experience emotions of joy, of happiness, even of sorrow. The emotion of love compels us to do things that are crazy. Um, I'm not a parent, but for those of you who are, being up at 3 a.m. in the morning is really crazy. But for some reason, you love this child, you have that feeling, and so it compels you to do something. That's a, that's a good thing. It's part of what makes us human. And then finally, with that is volition, or we might say will, the ability to decide, not just to think through things or to have emotions, but to act on those. God's will is sovereign. He can act however he pleases. 
further. His wisdom is flawless and inscrutable. His emotions are just and pure. And he's willing. when he takes action, it is always good. However, we ourselves don't always do this. But we still have the ability to make decisions. That's one way we are like God. Rather than an animal that's playing out its instincts, we can make those decisions. And this sets us apart and distinct from creation. So, all that... Uh, short treatise on the systematic theology of the likeness of God. There's a problem, though. These things are things that make us like God and are great blessings, but to be in the image of God has to mean something a little different. Why is that? Well, while this may be a part of it, um, along with many other things, whenever we get to chapter 3, we're going to read about a beast of the field that's going to have the ability to reason and to think, and to make decisions. So while this may be a way that we're able to to bear the image of God, there's got to be more than that going on. So what's going on here? So what is an image anyway? Okay, so we think about the image of God, and it's this um, theologically loaded category that we think about, how there's all this stuff we think about. It's it's a Christian, a, a Jewish term that gets used a lot, okay? If we just look at its atoms, the atoms of that phrase, what does it mean? Okay, God, we maybe sort of have an idea a little bit about what's going on there. But what is an image? If we just look at the pieces of that, what is an image? Well, an image is just a statue. A lot of times it gets used in the Bible like this, of 2 Chronicles 23:17. It says, all the people went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They broke it in pieces, its altars and images, and killed Metan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. Ezekiel 7.20 says, As for the beauty of his ornaments, he set it in his majesty, but they made from it the images of their abominations, their detestable things. Therefore I have made them like refuse to them. Ezekiel 16.17 says, You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I have given you, and made for yourselves male images and played the harlot with them. So this is the same word, it's a Hebrew word, selim, that's used in Genesis chapter 1. And it's used in these places. And what's it talking about here in these places? If we look at the context, I hope I gave you enough context to see it, but it's talking about an idol. It's talking about a statue. It's talking about an image. It's talking about stuff like this that people in this culture would have seen. So at the risk of being wildly confusing, to say we're the image of God means we're the idol of God. Okay, So that's a little bit confusing, but if we just... Stick the word in there, that's what it means. So what is that? What are the implications of that? Well, first off, we get the idea of idols as a representative. If we look at the historical context, we talk about how idols are gods, and you read this in the Bible. Well, they didn't actually think that the wood statue was a deity. Like they didn't think that the wood statue got up and did things, but rather that it was a representative. After they fashioned the idol, they imbued it, did some sort of ritual to give it divine essence. And they thought of that statue, some of these you may see up here, as divine. So it wasn't as though the idol was actually a god. Rather, it was meant to stand as a representative of the god. One of the things that helps us see this is if we look at this word selim, which is the word image, it is actually a word that goes down to and we get the word shadow. Okay, So it's a similar Hebrew word to the word shadow. And now what is a shadow? A shadow is not the actual thing but it's a representation of the thing. You can't look at a shadow and learn everything about something, but you can get a decent idea about it. Let's notice how this word is used in Genesis chapter 5. It says, Adam lived 130 years and beget a son in his own likeness after his image 
and Nathan Seth. So there's something here about this likeness. One of the ways we represent or show people is how we act. For better or worse, you can learn a lot about Dale and Laura Dancer by looking at me. And may you be merciful in your judgment to them because of that fact. So as we come to the idea of an image or a likeness or a representation or a representative, it means that humans, by being the image of God, are meant to be the representatives of God to creation. It means that we represent him in who he is. We act like him, and we give a picture of what he is. This is going to be a crucial idea, as we see for the next several sermons, of what it means to be the image of God. Simply, part of being the image of God means that when people look at you, they see the character of God. If we just make it very simple, part of being the image of God means that when people look at you, they see what God is like. Okay? When anything in creation looks at you, they see what God is like. The other example where we see this word used in Near Eastern culture is not just about these statues, but kings would often say that they are the image or the selim of God. One, what that means is that they stood as the representatives of the gods. They would be the go-between between these false deities and humans. And this king and his divine authority was showing to all the people what the will of the gods was. So one thing to note in Near Eastern cultures is that this was something that was reserved for kings. And so when the Bible makes this claim that we are made in the image of God, it's making something really revolutionary. Because everyone else is thinking, well, kings, they're, they're the image of God. But what the Bible's saying is everyone bears that. Okay? So let's look a little bit about how this, this ties to this kingship deal. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and then what does God say? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse number 28, Then God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. So, if we go back to this, if we think about what the image of God meant in that culture, it meant to be a representative of God, but also someone who's ruling on behalf of that God. And so we as humans, we are exercising dominion in the world. There's in some sense this little slice of the universe that we have rulership over. This happens through, what did he say, fruitful multiplication on, I think, on one of these slides, um, by filling the earth and subduing it. God has created the earth with tons of potential, and humans are there to make it flourish, thrive, and utilize these latent resources. We bring out these resources and provide productivity. And the goal of humanity here in this case, that in this idea, is that humans are going to fill the earth with life and production creativity. So as we think about this idea of the image of God, it is a statement about being like God and having certain characteristics that reflect his nature. Okay? But it's also a statement of vocation. It's not just a blessing that we get to hoard up and say, I'm in the image of God, but there's a charge and there's a responsibility that comes with this. So let's look at some examples um, of some aspects of this charge to humanity. So if you would, if you got your Bible, take and turn to Psalm 8, or turn on your Bible, whatever method you're using. That's what most of us are using right now, I think. Let's look at Psalm 8 and zoom on this a little bit further. 
In Psalm 8, David gives a reflection about the nature of how God has made the world. David says, Psalm 8, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. So as we're reading here about the glory of God in creation, David reflects on this and he says, look, what, is, what are humans that you're mindful of them? Why do you care about us so much? And then he goes on to list all the blessings that God has given them. He's crowned them with glory and honor. He's given them significance and purpose. And then what does it say? How this is directly tied to their dominion over the works of your hands. How humans are rulers in the world. So part of this significance and meaning means that God has left us in, in charge of the world under his care. Okay. However, there's a problem, right? The call is not to be tyrants, okay? One of the problems with the word dominion or rule or subdue is because, as we'll see later, humans really mess this up. It's, the job here is to cultivate what is there and bring it to its fullest potential. Let me give you an example. If you go out somewhere to a place of arable land, it's naturally going to grow some stuff. You're going to get trees and grasses, maybe some weeds, and all sorts of stuff. There's potential there that just lives. But what happens? Humans can, can take that piece of land and they can plow it. And they can plow some rows in there, get rid of the rocks and the weeds, and they can plant seeds there in an ordered fashion. Maybe they create a sort of irrigation system. And then this growth that's there naturally yields even more fruit. And then what can happen ideally is that that land would then bless other people. God left the potential in there of that ability to grow, but he left humans in charge of cultivating that and bringing more out of it. Part of this imaging God means we make things flourish, as well as mentioned here, as we saw earlier, about how you have dominion over the beasts of the field. Part of that may be domesticating animals. You know, we're used to, to tractors today that will even run on GPSs. You don't have to run them. But getting an animal to do your plowing for you was an incredible leap in technology. Like, think about that. How many other animals use other animals for a purpose? That makes humans pretty incredible in some sense. I love to talk to my Aubrey's Uncle Jeff about raising cattle and horses and all the things that go into the feeding of it and the time in the pasture and when the breeding happens and, and setting these animals with these animals, and, and, and all that stuff is just super incredible. And that's part of this basic image of imaging God, is of not just leaving things to their natural consequences, but for humans to be able to, in wisdom, run this place. However, that's going to take wisdom. And in that, we reflect the character of God, that God is not going to just take and take. The dominion we've been blessed with is not to exploit and to suppress, 
It's not to draw out more than is there and to squeeze things until they give up. Let me give you an example. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10 says this. A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Okay, Someone who's going to rule with wisdom, with righteousness, is going to have regard for the life of that animal. You know, you can work so hard on an animal that it will die if you work it too hard. You can literally say, okay, we've got to get this field plowed and this field plowed and this field plowed, and you just work that animal, and it will die. This is partly saying the person who's righteous, the person who has wisdom, is not going to do that. They're going to have compassion. I think doing something like that would be a mismanagement of the authority and the dominion that God's given us. Part of being the image of God, we might say imaging God, means that we reflect his character of compassion and his ability to say enough. God created for six days, and then on the seventh day, God stopped creating. God could have just kept on expanding and expanding and expanding, but essentially God said, that's enough. And part of ruling with wisdom and ruling in righteousness means knowing when to say enough, because our, our drive for expansion, our drive for more, can quickly lead to really terrible things. Many times when people want to expand their empires, it leads to the subjugation of other people. You know, people having clothing is like awesome. That's a really good thing. But we've got the cotton gin, and whenever that happened, we needed more cotton. And it eventually led to a really nasty subjugation of people. Why? Because we wanted to expand. We couldn't say enough. And so the rulership that God's given us is not just to take and to take and to take and to take, but it's to rule in wisdom and righteousness. So let's see, how does this go? Okay? Maybe there's this idea of human flourishing, of things going really well and we're really excited about and all that's going on. Okay? How do humans do with this? Well, if we go to Genesis chapter 2, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend and to keep it. So here's this, this agricultural stuff of, of, of farming. Okay? That's the human's job there in the garden of Eden that God's planted. And then in verse number 2, or chapter 2, verse 19, it says, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So what is Adam given charge of? He's given charge of dressing and keeping the garden, but he's also given charge of these animals. Okay, And so far, he's doing pretty well at it. He's doing really well at it. Another part of the image of God we saw was male and female together. Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, says, Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. So human beings together were representing and reflecting God's image and God's character together in ruling the garden. Unfortunately, things get off to a problem. If we turn the page to chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, sorry, the text is so small. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the trees of the, or the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So things were off to a great start, and we might be optimistic that it would continue indefinitely, but it just doesn't. We see a snake, a beast comes here, and these humans fail to live in the image of God. Humans were supposed to exercise authority over creation. They were supposed to bring beasts into subjection to them, but instead they find themselves having the servant exercising power over them. They fail to cast out this abomination to God's will and rule on his terms. Instead of being like God and representing who God is, when he already made them like that, he already made them in his likeness. They said, we want to be more like God. To offer a weak analogy of this, it would be analogous to our Secretary of State, our chief diplomat, and our chief representative to other countries. If they tried to seize the authority of the president and Maybe it's not time to mention this example, but stage a coup. That would be treason, okay? And there are many states that treason is the only place where you can get the death penalty, okay? It's a serious offense to try and overthrow the rule of something of, of the party that rightly deserves it. So if we look at that abomination that it would be for our chief representative to try to seize authority for themselves, multiply it by a million, billion, and a trillion, you get a sense of the scale of the offense against God, the Almighty, the only wise judge, that we would try to seize his authority. And we've misrepresented this. And so because of this, there's consequences. So God's representatives have failed and his image has been marred. No longer can people look to Adam and Eve and humans as people who bear the image of God, who can represent what God is like. They've been deceived into staging a rebellion against God. So the question is, what is God going to do about this? Okay, What is God going to do about this? Well, there's a few things that are given. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, it says, He said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. So here, part of the charge of being the image of God meant to go and be fruitful and multiply, and God says, that's going to be harder now. The difficulty of, of childbirth, and though it's a blessing to bring children to the world, that's going to be harder. That's going to be a more difficult thing. It's for, from up until the past couple hundred years ago, it's one of the most dangerous things you could really do was to try to have children. But it's what God had called people to do it, and it gets harder. Notice further what's said here to Adam. It says, Then to Adam, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat it, cursed is the ground for your sake, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring you. You shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for to dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And so instead of existing in perpetuity like God does, is immortal with access to the tree of life, humans are removed from that. And further what happens? That other part of being the image of God that meant bringing creation into subjection of ordering it like God did, of being creative, of allowing production, that's going to be harder as well. Now the ground's not going to cooperate like you were, you were used to. It's going to be more difficult. And so it seems that this is really bad. And yeah, it's, it's really bad. And so this vision of what's the world supposed to be like is, it looks like it's going down the tubes. 
so how are we going to get past this? Are we going to get past this? In Genesis chapter 3, though, we skipped over it. We'll come back to it now. We read the seeds of, of hope for this. In Genesis 3.14, it says, Then God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you're more cursed than all cattle, and, you've, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we read this serpent is going to be cursed as well. Because of his part in this insurrection, in this rebellion against God, he is going to eat dust all of his life. But there's something here that's even better. That though this serpent and its descendants, its children, are going to be at war with the, the children of this woman, there's going to come a seed. There's going to come a human from this woman who's going to succeed in this, who's going to bruise the head or crush the head of that serpent who's going to completely destroy it, who's going to exercise dominion and authority over creation like God called them to, who's going to put them into subjection and rule like God said from the very beginning. And so we begin to, with hope, look for this figure. We begin to, as we go through the rest of the Bible, to try to find who this person's going to be. And so we go to the next page. Eve has a descendant. Eve has a seed. His name is Cain. And we look at that, and maybe if we've forgotten all the stuff we know about the Bible, we think, okay, we're going to have a seed. This is the guy. This is the guy we're looking for. But the problem is Cain ends up going out, and he kills his brother. He falls prey to exactly the same sort of, of, of mismanagement and, and sin that his parents did. And Cain's descendants, they just go into further bloodshed and violence and oppression and further, Adam and Eve have another son. His name is Seth. And his sons and grandsons and daughters and granddaughters are all the same. Till we read that eventually the hearts of men were only evil continually. And so it seemed like, okay, we're going to fix this. And it just seems to go from bad to worse. So God starts over with one person. His name is Noah with his family, and he's going to start over. He's going to destroy and move all that sin out of the way, all those evil people, and start over with Noah. Okay, maybe Noah's the guy we're looking for who's going to fix this. But as soon as he gets off the ark, he falls into sin as well. And his people begin to build cities against God and to raise themselves up against God just as bad, if not worse, than all the people before them. And so every human we have is continuing to fail to do this like God has called them to. Until eventually we get to a man named Abraham. God calls Abraham and says, hey, you're going to be the special guy, and your, your, your seed, your descendants are going to be special as well. Try with that. Abraham fails again. Until eventually, instead of ruling the world, the people of God who are supposed to be blessed, who are supposed to be his chosen ones, who we may be looking for, the ones to bring this blessing of crushing the serpent and finally being the image and representatives of God like they're supposed to be, they're under the thumb of a man named Pharaoh, and they're enslaved, and he's literally the embodiment of everything that is a misrepresentation of God, of arrogance, pride, self-serving, and maliciousness. And so we come again to hopelessness. However, God redeems these people, and he makes them a nation. Exodus chapter 19 is where this story leaves 
we'll leave off the story today. It says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So God seems to say, we're going to work to repair this broken image, this broken call to humanity to reflect me and to rule the world by commissioning this new kingdom of priests. Okay, We're going to fix here these people and their ability to be the go-betweens between everyone else and all creation and me. These people are going to be priests to the world. They're going to be holy. They're going to be special. They're going to be like me. So from the ashes of this marred image of God, God is going to work to bring things back together. And so from here, he's going to begin to start this project of letting these people serve as his image, to bear his name and his reputation to all the world around. Next week, Dustin is going to give us a rundown of how it goes of how they do with that project. So what does this mean? <laughs> we spent, I don't know, I didn't start my timer to see when I started, but we spent some time looking at 2,000 years of world history, of looking at the very first people and the purposes of humanity and their call to be the image of God, to be his representatives and how humans are charged individually and collectively with representing God and showing all the world what he's like by working and ruling in wisdom and righteousness. But most of what we saw, as it said to image of God, was agricultural labor. Okay, It was animal husbandry. It was um, like growing food and stuff like that. And a lot of us don't do that. right? I, I'm not sure if we actually have anyone in the audience who does this. Um, if you do, great. Glad you do. But what does it mean for all of us? What are we to make of this? Is this image of God just something that was given to people who were pre-industrial and they are the only ones who can fulfill this function? I want us to think about the work that we do, about the jobs that we have, about the vocations that we engage in. There's some instruction given to Titus by Paul, and it's given concerning bond servants, but I believe the application is readily apparent to people who are workers, to people who are employed. Notice what it says here. In Titus chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. So here, Paul's talking to Titus, and he's telling people, work hard. Don't steal. Whenever a master or a boss tells you to do something, do it. Don't answer back, but be a faithful worker. Be a faithful servant to them. Why? So you can adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. That means to wear God's word. That means to represent God and who he is to other people. It means that when we go out, when we do our labor, even if it isn't agricultural, People should be able to see in our work, in our productivity, in our creativity, and all these things, what God is like. A picture of that diligence, a picture of that excellence. And so in our work today, we bear the image of God. Notice what it says in Colossians chapter 3. 
It says, bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Here, the Paul once again says, when, when bond servants with application to us work, we don't do it with eye service. We don't just work so that when the person who's paying us will say, okay, that's fine. We remember that we work for God and that we are his representatives when we work. We are not just serving God when we're here in church, but when we are in our physical pursuits, you are serving God. If you're an artist, if you're a mechanic, if you're a teacher, if you're in, in health services, if you're in finance or accounting, whatever you do, that is worship to God if you do it with the right heart. If you're in, in, in teaching right now, Lord bless you. Teach well. Invest in people. Allow them to learn. If you're a mechanic, do it with excellence. If you're someone who's uh, an engineer, design things well that are efficient, that, that save resources. Do this and showcase the wonder and the majesty of our God and what he is like. Whenever we go out on the job and we as Christians, when we as servants of God are lazy, when we are unethical, when we're sloppy in what we do and we don't seek excellence, we are misrepresenting God. Part of the fundamental call to image God means that when we go out into our work, we do it well. And we seek to do better and better. So work diligently and work with excellence in your craft to bring value to the world and to bless other people. Not to get more and more for yourself, but to bless other people and to give glory to God. So that's the sermon for today. We'll have more information on how this theme of the image of God plays out, of how humans do with it, and the eventual need for someone to come and do it correctly. We never want to close a service without offering invitation. Ultimately, the person who was perfect and did all things was Jesus Christ. And that's the person we want to point you to today. If there's a sin problem you have, if you need to name him in baptism and obedience to the gospel, if you need help being more diligent in your work, we want to point you to Jesus. Whatever we can do to help you, please come have a seat on the front as we stand and sing. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For further information about our church, please go to normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com.